Our next guest joins us from Toronto, but just before we introduce KC, let me go to the website of the Business Council of Canada and read you a portion of the statement they put out a couple of days ago uh, about the events of the week. And it begins with the events of the past week have saddened and shaken us all. This is a time to recognize the pain felt by many, to show empathy, and to care for one another. As business leaders, we're coming together to denounce unequivocally racism in all its forms. To realize Canada's potential, we need to acknowledge our historical shortcomings and the harsh realities that so many continue to face today. We all share in the responsibility to eliminate racism. As employers, we value and promote diversity and inclusion in our companies and in our communities. We call on other leaders to do the same so that together we can build a more just, fair and equitable society we can and must do better and it's signed by well dozens of business leaders uh, the one signatory that is not on that list is our next guest casey gundium is the ceo at red dot digital it's an agency in toronto who uh, has written a letter to those people who put out that uh, statement at the business council of canada saying oh come on that's pretty half-baked stuff get serious casey gundium good morning and welcome to the program. So, hello, hello, and thank you for having me. It's good to have you with us. Tell us, take a moment and tell us a little bit about Red Dot Digital, Casey, before we move into this uh, letter that you've written the BCC. Tell us about your company, please. Thank you. So, um, I run a company and I've been running it for five years. We help organizations, big and small, in digital transformation. I also just launched a new business matchmaking platform um, with AI, so I'm in tech as well. And I'm on a different boards, um, different countries in the UK. I sit on the board of the MBA for Imperial College. Uh, here I join, I'm the vice president of the British Canadian um, Chamber of Commerce in uh, Toronto and uh, many other uh, organizations. Now, tell us about, uh, first of all, why you decided, and you wrote this letter uh, not only as the CEO of Red Dot Digital, but you also spoke on behalf, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, but you also wrote uh, on behalf of other black-owned companies here in Canada, correct? Uh, Actually, no. This was a private um, letter, open letter, to um, to the council. Um, I'm hope, as I mentioned, I don't speak for all black people. Okay. I speak as a, um, as a business owner who also has a passing corporate. And uh, I wanted, the reason why I wanted to, I would say, respond is because I've seen tons of statements similar to those, um, you know, from Canada Goose to now the Business Council. So when I went to the website of the Business Council of Canada, and I saw that they were representing 150 of the most powerful businesses in Canada. Mm-hmm. I thought that their, um, their letter was extremely mild uh, for times that we're living and the climate that we're in at the moment. So I wanted to really hold them maybe accountable to doing better, uh, especially if you look at their website and you look at the board. Um, we can't say that there's a lot of diversity and inclusion there. And then if you go to the staff page, um, the same thing applies. Mm-hmm. 
So the, as as you know, as you say, the and I, I I'm glad you gave me a moment to just read the statement as it sits on their website. It really, Casey, could have been written by a junior in any of the political Canadian parties. It's quite generic in nature. It's not bad, but as as you said, it's the sort of bland covering statement that we've all heard umpteen times over the past few years. But obviously, this was the tipping point for you, given the circumstances uh, under which it was written. It just, uh, I'm, I'm guessing here, it just really didn't cut it for you this time around. It was just too weak. It, it's too weak. Given the stance, given the, the power they have collectively, um, I was expecting way better than this. Um, and um, it, it is the same for most prominent businesses. I, I, we ask them to really um, put their foot forward and provide KPIs, you know, and, and be accountable to make changes that we can actually see. Um, yes. Yes, well, you know, in, in the States, similar um, letters have been written. I know that, uh, for example, in the agency business, and uh, there were 600 agency professionals down in the States got together and wrote a similar letter, Casey, calling for an end to systemic racism. And they included a number of suggestions for business leaders, uh, practical stuff that could be implemented uh, basically beginning this afternoon kind of thing. Talk to us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what you suggested to the business. Business Council of Canada by way of practical boots on the ground realities rather than these uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, willful thinking uh, <laughs> sentiments. I'm glad I'm glad you're bringing that up. I've been um, I've been in uh, corporate for 20 years. I've worked with some of the biggest organizations, um, and when I decided to launch my own business, I've also had to work with some big organization and small organization. So I have an, let's say that I I have insights into how business is given and business is done. So I wanted to say, you know, I do understand that maybe, um, uh, you know, you need a little bit of uh, help to, to help uh, black businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, so maybe open your supply chain and have specific KPIs to instruct procurement departments to hire black-owned businesses, the same way it's done for women-owned businesses. I've been at countless conferences, countless gatherings, where we talk about diversity and inclusion, and we focus on gender Mm -hmm. business, you know, um, sorry, women-owned businesses. Sure. And I'm usually the one in the room asking, okay, how do we uh, handle maybe the minority businesses? And it's always something that I've, um, I have always received a response that was mild or somewhat very weak, which is, oh, it's kind of a messy thing to do. It's kind of messy. Let's focus on women first. Well, by focusing on women first, we have forgotten about the other minority businesses, and now we're seeing the consequence. So the other thing that I, I suggest is probably hire black employees at leadership positions And I can tell you that this is rarely done. I would be in rooms where I'm the only minority, the only visible minority. Yeah, I believe that. Um, (laughs) And then uh, finally, hold yourself accountable. It's very easy to say, look, we're looking to hire two uh, black leaders in this department for the year. And at the end of the year, just 
make sure that you know you calculate whether or not you've done it. And if you haven't, check why you haven't done it. Could, could it be, would, uh, Casey, would, it, would if a company, if you approached a company and said, okay, listen, you don't have very many black management types in your organization, what's the story? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we've been kind of leaning on you here to, to, to uh, notice that and, and to try to include and promote people who are deserving into management positions and so on. What happens if the company gets back to you and says, well, you know, we'd like to, but darn it, we haven't found anybody worthy of the position yet. Is that an acceptable response? <laughs> Sterling, I, I love it. I re- if, if I was to receive one coin every single time I receive this answer, I would be a millionaire right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's not right. Uh, it is inaccurate. Um, blacks are in, at universities. Blacks are in the workforce. What I have noticed, and I do mentor quite a few uh, people, more junior people, and some of them, very, a minority of them are black. Um, and what I notice is uh, the black, uh, let's say, people I mentor are usually the ones that take longer to get to higher level position. Mm. Myself, I have the experience. I've been passed over for countless promotions. And I'm quite a, an outspoken person. I think I'm accomplished. I did have everything that was needed on paper. Right. There was always somebody that fit it better. Casey, did you and get... that's a fit better, you know, that we need to address. Right. And, and I'm, I'm almost out of time, and I'm very curious about this, because I read the bland, sentimental response from the Business Canada Council on their website. You have addressed some very specific issues to the BCC. Have they got back to you yet? What'd they say if they did? They have gotten back to me. They have sent me a letter. Um, the letter was not... Um, entirely satisfactory to me mm-hmm. and i do have uh, a meeting with them uh that is yet to be scheduled i would very much like the opportunity to find out how that goes can we kind of pencil in another one of these chats uh, after that meeting and you can uh, bring us up to date with what what they said and perhaps some of the uh, practical suggestions you left behind uh when you when you left the meeting can we can we uh, arrange another date here casey it would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, it's no problem at all. Casey Gundium is the uh, CEO of Red Dot Digital. And if you want to find out more about her company online, it's red.digital.net. Uh, the global condemnation of the death of George Floyd, one of the latest in a constellation of officer-involved deaths of unarmed civilians, has grown into a worldwide social movement for disbanding or Defunding Police. Our next guest wrote an article recently in theconversation.com entitled How Police Departments Can Identify and Oust Killer Cops. The author of that piece is Dr. Temitope Oriola, who is an associate professor in the Faculty of Sociology at the University of Alberta, joining us this morning from Edmonton. Dr. Oriola, Tope, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's good of you to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, you've wrote a, a very interesting piece uh, in the conversation in which uh, I, I'd like you to describe it for our listeners. We've got a few minutes here. Uh, I, 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 let's start with this because it, it takes place at the very beginning of your article as well. Because we're, we're now hearing as a result of the very emotional reaction to the death of George Floyd and all of the, 
the protests that have flown out of it, we're, we're starting to hear some fairly extreme sentiments being vocalized, including abolish the police, defund the police, and on and on right. it goes. So, Topi, talk to us about what you perceive as being the difference between, say, defund the police and abolish the police, which I doubt many people are actually leaning towards. Right. Uh, well, um, first, once again, uh, thanks for having me. I am delighted to be here. Um, now, in terms of defunding uh, the police, the idea behind that is simply moving resources uh, from certain operations of the police to uh, social services. Right. In uh, the core... Um, sentiment behind that is somewhat based on the realities of 21st century policing, at least in the geopolitical West. And that is the fact that much of what our police officers do today has, in fact, very little to do with policing in the conventional sense. They are often called to respond to psychotic episodes Mm -hmm, uh, being experienced by members of the public um, and, of course, calls for Uh, welfare checks, and so forth. And the idea is these instances, these incidents do not uh, need the police per se. You simply need social workers, mental health care workers, rather than the police. Now, the chief of police um, of Ottawa was recently uh, on on, on CTV and, in fact, said that up to 90% of their policing activities actually deal with mental health issues. Uh, and therefore, this moment calls for rethinking and re-strategizing how we understand the role of the police in society. I think for far too long, uh, we have expected way too much from our police officers. Good point. Uh, but Yeah, so uh, couples uh, engaged in brawls, uh, um, drunken uh, citizens, and, and so forth. Uh, and, and yet our officers... Uh, increasingly being asked to uh, do a business or, or carry out activities um, that have very little to do with the training uh, that they've re- received. And so uh, the funding comes from that idea that uh, we could be moving these resources to um, social services um, that are most relevant to much of the calls that uh, um, the police organizations get. So that's one. Uh, Now, the notion of uh, disbandment, uh, it's, of course, uh, slightly more extreme than disbanding, sorry, uh, defunding. Uh, By uh, disbanding the police, uh, a lot of folks who are advocating that do not necessarily mean that we would not have any police uh, organization. The idea is that uh, you can do this in a safe um, and reasonable way. Uh, So police organizations that have uh, a totally broken uh, relationship with the, uh, the communities that they serve can be disbanded reasonably uh, and then reconstituted. And what that means is that officers with lengthy, uh, poor disciplinary records can then be let go. Right. As those who remain uh, or, or can be asked to reapply, uh, those who have clean records, those who uh, have, have never been involved in uh, any kind of uh, uh, disciplinary issues can then reapply. And then we can um, then uh, go for the appropriate kinds of demographics 
right. uh, for hiring into the uh, police organizations, which I, I laid out in that article that you referenced earlier. Right, and, and, and one of the problems that, uh, and, and the notion, of, uh, and we've seen examples of this, where in some American cities, for example, uh, successfully, uh, basically uh, breaking down the police department and rehiring uh, the, the uh, most of the existing department under a new regime in terms of the way we're going to approach our job has been successfully right. accomplished in limited markets. However, Toby, the problem as I see it, and as certainly is seen by many others, is the resistance, the incredibly powerful resistance from police mm. unions. Absolutely. Uh, and and in, in, in the United States, I believe more so than here in Canada, uh, they have been uh, a huge stumbling block to any kind of reform right. uh, and positive change in policing. Uh, but the arguments that my colleagues and I have made over the years is that, in fact, ultimately, such measures, such reactionary attitude, uh, such uh, deliberate and conscientious uh, uh, prevention of major reforms work against the police as, uh, as an organization and the uh, police officers who uh, make such uh, enormous efforts on our, on our, our streets every day. Uh, setting up union contracts, uh, putting in place uh, uh, loopholes that ensure that uh, officers who abuse citizens or have uh, terrible disciplinary records remain uh, in service mm-hmm. only uh, serve to uh, make uh, policing much more difficult and much more dangerous, for especially for the good officers. But we, uh, and so... Well, while we recognize while we recognize that, and you're quite right uh, that they, they do place uh, their their membership in jeopardy to that extent, nonetheless, uh, they have they are in a, a power uh, position of being able to almost dictate policy to elected officials. Absolutely, and and this is where um, there's a need for our elected officials to stand up and be counted. Uh, there has never been any time in recent memory uh, where that is called for. When we need uh, elected officials, mayors, uh, premiers, uh, uh, parliamentarians, MLAs, and so forth to really stand up uh, and rise um, to, to this moment. Um, we have had too many instances um, of individuals just basically getting away with blue murder. And, and I'll give one example. Uh, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team uh, was set up in 2008 um, as uh, essentially the clearinghouse of major incidents, shootings and so forth, uh, killings and all that involving police officers. Now, nearly 12 years after its establishment, that organization only recently, as recently as a few days ago, filed its first set of charges against officers. After 12 12 years. years, right. Yeah, it's been, in my opinion, um, well, it's either those officers who were involved in those um, uh, brutalization or or abuse of civilians were totally lucky, or that organization has been somewhat incompetent. Um, And so uh, there's a need to rethink how this is done. What is the mandate of that organization, for instance? How has it been measuring performance or results? in the last 12 years. Yeah. So these are some of the issues that need to be addressed. 
in your article, uh, you mentioned a, a whole series of suggestions to police and to elected officials trying to reorganize police uh, protection for civilians. Right. Uh, and right. we, I'd like to take a look at some of those recommendations that you have. We're in Edmonton with our guest, Dr. Temi Tope Oriola from uh, the University of Alberta Department of Sociology, wrote a piece recently called uh, How Police Departments Can Identify and Oust Killer Cops. And Tope, we've talked about this in very general terms. Let's zoom in on some of the specific recommendations you make in your piece in theconversation.com, beginning with, and some of the stuff is painfully obvious, beginning with psychological screening. Apparently, it's not as, uh, shall we say, aggressive as uh, it could be. Uh, absolutely. Um, and the role of psychologists has been one that has been watered down over the years. Um, and I'm not alone in suggesting this. Um, the Honorable um, uh, Justice Frank Iacobucci, uh, who was on the Supreme Court for right. several years, yep. was asked to lead a team of in- or commission of inquiry uh, back in 2014 and submitted his report following uh, the killing of Sammy Atom on the Toronto streetcar. Streetcar, yeah. And he makes it clear in his report uh, that there was a, a need to allow psychologists play um, a more critical and fundamental role in the recruitment process. Now, as I argue in that piece that, that you've um, uh, kindly referenced, um, now, we do know that many of these officers who go on to become uh, a brutalizers of members of the public or or as I uh, mentioned in the article, killer cops are individuals who suffer from serious psychopathology. Uh, they tend to be aggressive, they are action-oriented, they are impulsive, um, and they are individuals who have demonstrated um, just an insouciant and a lackadaisical attitude towards the rights of others. Hmm. Now, these traits, these characteristics uh, begin very early in life in many cases, beginning in childhood. And therefore, the notion of a series of cultural sensitivity, diversity workshops, and so forth, do not necessarily help these individuals. The key variable is to put in place mechanisms to ensure that such individuals do not get in in the first case. You, You cannot fix them. The problem is not with the officer. The problem is with the human being. Gotcha. And also you suggest hire more women because uh, based on the research that you have done at the University of Alberta, women, I'm quoting, women are like less likely to, to support the use of force than men. Rather a sweeping generalization. Can you back that up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that finding is based off of uh, research conducted by the Population Research Lab at the University of Alberta. Okay. We put on questions on that survey. Uh, that survey was discontinued only a few years ago, but we, we used data from the 2014-2015 iteration of that, of that uh, survey. Now, and the, the finding was, was very clear, and there had been a few previous studies, mostly from the United States, uh, speaking to similar realities. Women, as a general social category, are much less likely to support any kind of use of force against civilians. Okay. Uh, university graduate-only officers is another recommendation. Uh, it is not a requirement uh, in uh, police forces, although most, I think most Canadian police forces are at least expressing a preference for university or post-secondary grads as in their recruitment efforts. Uh, absolutely. The ranks of killer cops 
are populated by officers who do not have a university degree. The evidence concerning that is incontrovertible. It is a solid, robust evidence. Most of the officers that have been involved uh, in uh, spectacular incidents of brutality uh, in uh, abuse of rights and, and deaths of civilians tend to be officers with grade 12 le- level education or less. Officers with uh, university degrees tend to recommend mental health support rather than make arrests. They tend to de-escalate more. They tend to have more verbal skills. They tend to understand and appreciate uh, the complexities of social life. And of course, the subtleties of policing uh, in an increasingly diverse environment. Now, much of that, of course, uh, comes from uh, the kind of training that they have had. Right. Uh, acquiring a, a university degree does take uh, a, a range of efforts. So it's a certain level of self-discipline and, and investment. Now, that's not to say that uh, officers who have grade 12 education or less, uh, 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 you know, lack total empathy or, or any form of social skills. What we're saying is that the environment has changed. Um, now, we have today and it's retired uh, and very senior officers who do not, in fact, have university degrees and have gone on to have stellar careers. Sure. But the reality is much of the kinds of activities that have happened over the years um, uh, are different in, in many ways uh, from what we see today. And, of course, the growing visibility of the police, there are cell phone cameras and so forth, and now uh, require a greater circumspection and a certain uh, discipline of the self and the police organization, things they didn't have to worry about um, uh, in the past. And if I may just go back to um, the issue uh, of having more women uh-huh. on the uh, service, I, I think there's a critical point to be made there. And that is that we're not talking about just throwing in a handful or a couple of women. Oh, right. We're talking about a reasonable number with the goal being... Uh, a gender-balanced police uh, uh, service. This is not a favor that we do to uh, for or to women. This is in the interest of society. Uh, female police officers tend to de-escalate. They tend to engage in uh, uh, verbal interaction and are less likely to resort to uh, use of lethal force. Most killer officers uh, tend to be men. And in some police jurisdictions, they tend to be 100% Men, um, and therefore, uh, as I argue uh, in, in the research undergirding that that paper, uh, there isn't much to policing today that makes it fundamentally masculine or male. So the facticity of maleness has become somewhat irrelevant to to, to policing. There. And so I, I wonder why or how we got to the point where we uh, only males or um, mostly males are recruited into policing. And that's a fair, uh, fair point to raise, Dr. Oriola, and I'm afraid I'm out of time, and I'm very grateful for yours this morning, and may I just recommend your article, How Police Departments Can Identify and Oust Killer Cops to Our Listeners. It's available in its entirety online at theconversation.com. Dr. Oriola, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you for having me. Tammy Topi Oriola, Professor of Sociology, University of Alberta in Edmonton. Our next guest says, and I quote, we're long overdue for a public discussion about whether armed, uniformed police officers belong in our public schools, especially if they make some students feel unsafe. Our next guest uh, is Patty Backus, former Vancouver School Board Chair, now a columnist, whose most recent is, do police belong in schools? Patty, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. Uh, You, as a school board chair, uh, know very well about school liaison officers. It's very much a fixture of British Columbia schools, especially in the big cities like Vancouver. You've met and worked with school liaison officers for many years. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, In in Vancouver School District, for example, we've had a, a program running with the Vancouver Police for almost 50 years now. Uh, and uh, with uh, school liaison officers who are connected with schools and in some cases have offices in high schools and are frequent presences at uh, various school events and build relationships with students and, um, you know, generally a fairly positive uh, overall experience from my perspective, but... um, but my perspective isn't always the only one that matters, for sure. Right. Well, then let's get to the point that you make in the article about uh, the some of these uniform school liaison types making some students feel unsafe. That's exactly the opposite of the purpose that they're in the school for. Well, exactly. And, you know, you can't really turn on the TV or go to Twitter these days without seeing um, footage of... Uh, either a, a black person or an indigenous person being beaten or being shot uh, at the hands of police. And we've, ha- we've had several weeks of protests uh, following the killing of George Floyd right. and, uh, and, and subsequent uh, brutality uh, and racism, uh, frankly. And so, I, you know, I, I saw there was a bit of action on Twitter a, few, a while back where the uh, Burnaby School District retweeted a police uh, tweet from the Burnaby police of uh, uniformed officers, a series of them welcoming students back to school. And it, it just struck me as, ooh, you know, that's, that's interesting in the middle of all of this, that that would be seemed appropriate. And uh, sure enough, there was a very quick backlash to that and that those tweets were taken down and there were a couple of attempts to, you know, denounce racism and then finally apologize. And, and and then a student wrote a letter to a Burnaby paper talking about, and this was a black student, how uh, they experienced racism on one, pretty much a daily basis in school and having the police officers in the school made them feel unsafe. Uh, last week, well, this just this last week, uh, Wednesday, uh, a student, a high school student in Vancouver addressed a committee of the Vancouver School Board uh, with a very similar message about not feeling safe with police officers in schools. And it, it, it made me uh, think, you know, we've been doing this for a long time on the assumption this is all positive. Sure. Maybe it's not. And maybe it's time we stopped and reviewed this and, and actually talked to students about what their experiences are. Yeah, it's a good point, because uh, in the States, I mean, there's it's a, like a, a two, it's almost parallel universes here, Patty, because in the States, there are literally thousands and thousands of uniformed armed police officers with bulletproof vests 
class who go to work every day in a school. And the reason they're there is because they don't want a school shooting. And should a, 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 a situation like that occur, at least there's some a protective uh, agent in the building to repel said shooter. That's the theory. And they're spending gobs of money on these uh, armed officers in schools. But then again, they have, unfortunately, hundreds of examples of why they're needed. In Canada, we don't have that kind of history. Is the, is the need equal? Well, I think there are different models. And I think the other, the other reality in America is that, in the United States, is that a much higher proportion of black students are actually arrested at school, have a higher rate of being incarcerated, have a higher rate of, uh, you know, being much more severely punished for similar offenses than, than white students would be. And it, and the policing that it is actual policing in the schools where in Canada, it's more of a liaison model. Right. Not so right. Much there to police the students as to somewhat of a public relations exercise to build a positive image and hopefully have a preventive effect and, and, and encourage students to, you know, stay on a, on a positive track and not get involved in criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've all assumed that this is, this is a good thing. And, and I, you know, I, in my call, I might point to several positives of the program. Um, but, uh, you know, like anything else, when someone comes forward and says, hey, wait a minute, this makes me feel unsafe, particularly when it's a student, and then particularly when it's a student uh, saying, I feel unsafe in my school, I'm already feeling discriminated against. And there's evidence that those students have a higher disproportionate risk um, because of the color of their skin of being harmed by police officers. We see that in the statistics. We see Indigenous uh, people, uh, Black people in Canada are all disproportionately harmed and sometimes killed by police, unfortunately. So the message that, you know, police are your friend may not be always a message that's a fair one to be giving to those students. And I want to hear what they think. I want to hear from students. Is this working for you? If this is making you feel unsafe, is there a different way we could deliver the benefits of this program uh, without making anyone feel unsafe in their school? And from a taxpayer perspective, obviously Canadians don't spend on a per capita basis the kind of money they spend on school protection officers that they do in the States. Nonetheless, if we have liaison personnel in many hundreds, if not thousands of Canadian schools, especially secondary schools, uh, clearly there are some major taxpayer dollars involved, Patty. Uh, You've done some number crunching as part of uh, some background into this. Uh, what, What do the numbers look like? And could that could that amount be better spent? Well, we're hearing calls to defund police uh, all over North America right now, and you know, that, which is a, a, a movement to allocate funds that are now going to policing into other supports for people, right. uh, mental health supports yep. and other prevention. I compared the increases to the Vancouver police budget over the last dozen years compared with the Vancouver school board funding it gets from the province. Uh, the, the Vancouver police budget since 2008 is it's it's almost double. It's almost double what it was. I think it's about 90% increase um, compared to the Vancouver school board's funding, which has gone up about 5%. So it's a big gap. And as school districts have had to reduce counselors uh, and other specialist support staff, and I was 
a trustee for those years when we consistently had budget shortfalls, our funding didn't, as you can imagine, 5% over 12 years doesn't even come close to keeping up with inflation. Mm. So we were had to make cuts each year in order to balance our budget. Um, we lost a lot of the supports that were there for students in the past. We lost a lot of intervention programs. Uh, we saw caseloads for counselors get absolutely unwieldy. At the same time, the police budgets were going up and up and up. So, we, you know, while we've lost school counselors, we've gained police, and that, that seems problematic to me. If there was a way that we could redirect some of that funding into supports for students early on, um, perhaps that would be a better, more effective model than adding more armed police officers uh, to to be in school. And to repeat your bottom line, which you, you emphasize considerably in the piece in the Georgia Strait, by the way, friends, which is where you can find Patty's columns, uh, you, you basically, and I'm coming back to a point you made already, but uh, it's about... Uh, it's about the players on the field. It's about the the students in the schools who perhaps have a point of view that is uh, not being heard frequently enough. Yeah, and you know, people like me, I'm a middle-aged white lady, uh, you know, policing works pretty well for me. I, I feel fairly comfortable with it, but I know, you know, my perception and my experience is not the experience of a 16-year-old black student um, or an indigenous student. So what I, what I propose in my column is that school districts should be asking students, surveying students, you know, what's working for you? What isn't working for you? How does this make you feel? And then engaging them in a, in a discussion of, you know, are there things that are there? What are the benefits? How can we maintain the benefits, but remove any of the harms and do this better and ask students and let them really take the lead and support them in that fund them, uh, give them credit for it. Don't ask for their labor without some compensation because hmm. um, it is a lot of work and we can't keep asking people to do work without compensation, but give them recognition for that leadership. Um, you know, it's an educational experience as well, but recognize that and, and ask for that direction and then listen to and really act on it. You know, we often ask students to give input and then we carry on and do things the way we've always done them. We really need to step back right now. I think all of us, um, all of us, and particularly uh, those of us who have the kind of privilege that, that white people have had in our society, <clears throat> we have an obligation to start paying attention and listening and thinking about how we how we change this, this systemic racism that we're seeing and, and its horrendous impacts on society. You make some good points in the column and some good points on the radio. We're grateful for that part, particularly this morning, Patty. I read your stuff every week. Uh, the uh, column is, Do Police Belong in Schools? You can read Patty's stuff anytime in the Georgia Strait online at straight.com. Patty, nice to have you back with us. We'll talk again, guaranteed. Thanks, Sterling. Looking forward to it. An article in the Vancouver uh, Sun a few weeks ago caught our attention. The Pacific Northwest once had a language all its own. One of the few words still in use is skookum. And we decided to dive into the story, and we discovered a man named Jay Powell. Mr. Powell is a retired University of British Columbia anthropological linguist, and perhaps the last known speaker of a language called Chinook Wawa, which uh, was, once upon a time ago, about 100, 120 years ago, the language of people from Oregon to Alaska. Jay Powell, good morning, and welcome to the program, sir. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Jay. We've been trying to track you down for a couple of weeks. I'm glad we found you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Chinook Wawa. It, it is an ancient language. Was it the, uh, the tongue of the West Coast, and for how long? 
Well, it, it, it isn't really an ancient language. In fact, uh, it got started in about 1810 down at the mouth of the Columbia River and, um, and sp- spread from there. It's, uh, um, it's got about 500 words, uh, a third of them from, from Chinook, a third of the language at the mouth of the Columbia, a third of them from English, and a third from French. By the 1840s and 50s, it, it had spread uh, um, up into into B.C. And um, Sam Sullivan, who uh, is is interested in, in Chinook as, as part of our history, started uh, looking around. And although there were 100,000 speakers uh, that could you know make their way in, uh, in Chinook while... Uh, um, uh, at uh, at the turn of the, the 20th century, the late 1800s, mm-hmm. um, I may be the last one who learned it in a, a, a social setting, you know, by speaking it. Interesting stuff. Now, historically, though, Jay, just for another second, uh, going back to uh, you're talking about the origins at the mouth of the Columbia River down in the States and so on. During the Klondike Gold Rush, which, of course, took place a a lot of traveling through B.C. to the gold fields, would that have been a popular uh, communications form uh, or would English have been the dominant language by then? No, actually, Sterling, it was uh, um, Chinook jargon was was much used. It, uh, um, you know, it it had become uh, a common knowledge that if 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 you as a um, as a gold seeker or just passing through wanted to uh, wanted to make it in in British Columbia, you needed to, to set yourself up with a. A set of long underwear and a Chinook dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're among the last speakers of the language, take us back, Jay, uh, to how you learned uh, and became exposed to Chinook Wawa in the first place. Well, that's that's uh, that's a fun story. Um, I uh, actually uh, um, decided that I was interested in in the fact that that languages, uh, First Nations languages on the Northwest Coast, were starting to go extinct. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in 1969, I decided there was a language that wasn't related to any other language in the world, and in extremis down on the Washington coast. So I went down and. And they they weren't interested in having a uh, a, a white man um, uh, learn their secrets unless uh, unless they could trust them. So they demanded that I go on a spirit quest, and I was trained by a, a Tamanoist man, a, 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 a First Nations doctor, and um, he he really spoke good Chinook. And we started out a word at a time, and within two weeks we were rattling away and and Chinook singing uh, singing old songs and Mamukihi, um, having fun with it. So is this uh, this is an oral tradition up until this point? Uh, there is no. Uh, you were talking earlier about long underwear and a Chinook dictionary, but there there wasn't ever one, was there? Uh, what a dictionary! Yeah, yeah. Oh my heavens! Uh, uh, there were fifty dictionaries uh, by the by the eighteen nineties, uh, and the, the, that amounts to just word lists that were prepared by um, uh, by 
by missionaries and gold seekers and officials that uh, um, that that wanted um, want, wanted to make their way in uh, in Chinook, and um, and and so there there were lots of ways to learn it, and a lot of people did learn it. But then, um, the, then the little red uh, schoolhouses started started appearing on the reserves around uh, um, around the Northwest. Um, the kids started learning English, and uh, and and that was pretty much the end of the need for Chinook. You know, these languages can last for hundreds of years if you don't change the need for them. Right. But it, uh, it gets replaced by English. So, and it's our loss. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, though, I was unaware of the depth of written resources with respect to the understanding of the language. But once the uh, the school system decided to discourage that, what happened to the dictionaries? And uh, is there still that that written uh, reserve of information about Chinookwawa available, or uh, did they somehow or another disappear over time? No, it uh, there are there are dictionaries, and there are several books about Chinookwawa uh, uh, that have come out. Uh, so there are lots of, of sources for people that are interested. You know, um, it it's probably true that uh, that Chinookwawa was the was the first language of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, you know Hastings Mill. Was was the the first enterprise here, and uh, you know they um, the the workers there were from First Nations groups all over the coast. They didn't have the same language, and um, and immigrants who came from uh, from heaven knows where. Sure. And so Chinookwawa was was the, the easiest language, and it became the language of Hastings Mill. Vancouver's first language. Interesting. I'm looking at a website I found doing some homework to get you uh, called kumtuks.ca, K-U-M-T-U-K-S.ca, and it's about the history of language in in, uh, British Columbia. And kumtuks is a Chinookwawa word. What does it mean? Well, it, it, uh, um, it means to know and... You know, there used to be a lot of uh, um, Chinook words in our our local uh, usage. When I started thinking about it in 19, the late 1960s, um, the, there was the Kumtuk School in, mm-hmm. the, in the East End. There was um, the Muckamuck House. Rest, sure, yeah, and right. Heading up to uh, Whistler, there was the Kalahani Inn, uh, out of doors. Mm-hmm. That's also the word for an outhouse, of course. Uh, Siwash Rock, that uh, um, was still Siwash Rock. Right. Cultus Lake. Right. Interesting. Uh, we're surrounded by um, by place names, and if you know, um, also individual names. That um, uh, if if I were going to uh, give you a nickname, it would probably be Chickaman, which is the word for Sterling. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was hoping it was going to be something nice, Jay. Now I'm out of time here. I'm out of time, but I do want to remind our listeners that if they want to learn more about Chinookwawa and the history of language in British Columbia, Kumtuks is a great website. K u m t u k s dot c a. Jay, it's just been a real treat having a chat with you. I'd like to keep your phone number, sir, and tap back into this a little later on. Thank you so much for uh, for making the trip and getting together with us this morning. We appreciate it.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.